Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Pluto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by... Kerry Clack, columnist, editorial board member. Nancy Prayer Johnson, associate editorial board editor. Metro editor, Greg Jefferson. It's been two weeks since our last podcast, and um, it just feels like uh, the world has done a few revolutions since then. Um, We're going to start by talking about uh, Uvalde and uh, the the mass shooting at Robb Elementary, and so much has emerged since we last uh, talked with you. Um, About a week and a half ago, um, Brian Chasnoff did a story for the Express News, a a bombshell story, uh, in which he uh, cited a source saying that um, the law enforcement officials in the school did not make any attempt to open the classroom door uh, where where the kids and the the teachers were. Um, And also uh, there was the, the source uh, indicated that the door was probably unlocked. Um, Following that, the Texas Tribune had a story in which uh, apparently they had access to surveillance footage and they um, confirmed what was in Brian's story. And they also, you know, provided some new details. And um, I think, you know, as a result of all this reporting, you had uh, uh, Stephen McGraw, the DPS director, uh, speaking of the Senate committee last week and essentially pinning all the blame on Pete Arredondo, the uh, school district police chief and saying this was an abject failure. You've now had the mayor of Uvalde who's angry at Steve McGraw and suggesting that he's been deceptive and that he's trying to pin on the blame on, you know, the local officials. Kerry, we, we know a lot more than we, than we did, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, do you, is it clear to you where the, 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 the responsibility or the, or the, 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 the greatest share of the blame goes? No, well, maybe Arredondo was the first one there. I mean, that that seems to be clear. He was the first one there, and then he 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 says he tried to open the doors, and now we have evidence that he didn't. I mean, which in itself leaves you struggling for comprehension: is how does anyone not attempt to at least see if the mm-hmm. door is actually locked? Mm-hmm. But. Um, I kind of felt that the mayor, you know, who hasn't been completely truthful himself, at least in that first week, mm-hmm. I think he kind of spoke for what a lot of us feel. I think, yeah, definitely, you ever, ever, if there's one figure who's more to blame, it's it's Arredondo. But, man, DPS hasn't been truthful from the beginning also. And and, and McGall's performance last week, uh, it was strong. But, man, it was like with the fingers going everywhere. And everyone's lied to us. Everyone's lied to the to the families of those victims. Yeah, and I want to just mention too that last week, uh, State Senator uh, Roland Gutierrez from San Antonio filed a, a lawsuit uh, in in objection to the fact that he feels like TPS has not uh, responded to open records request and provided information. So that's been an, an issue throughout this whole thing. So uh, DPS Director Steve McCraw, I mean, it, it's hard to say that he's he's been deceitful, but he's. Uh, 
you know, almost deceitful by, by omission. You know, his focus has been singular on, on Peter Redondo. And like the fact of the matter is, you know, according to uh, the mayor of Uvalde, at one point there were as many as 14 DPS, you know, troopers in the hallway. What was their role? <laughs> That's never addressed. Macron never talks about that. We do know that in a phone conversation, you know, about a week, week and a half after the massacre, he told uh, State Senator Roland Gutierrez, never again will DPS stand down to a smaller, you know, law enforcement agency. I think implicit in that is regret that that they hadn't taken command in the situa- of, of the situation on May 24th. Yet, uh, you know, in his testimony uh, in Austin last week, McCraw said, we didn't do it because we were barred by law. I'm not exactly sure what that meant. Um, but yeah, like he he seemed to still be justifying why DPS didn't take control of the situation, take it away from Arredondo. I mean, when I saw the the images from in that school, you know, I mean, it's it made me beyond angry, right? I mean, you see um, law enforcement with their guns drawn, with the shields in the images, and you just picture on the other side of those walls and doors are kids being massacred and teachers being massacred um, when they do have the the guns and they do have the shields. And um, then when you realize that, you know, <laughs> the doors were probably not even locked, um, you know, I know one of the things that's being said about those doors is, um, it, and I know that McCraw talked about it in his testimony on that Tuesday, is that you have to lock it from the outside. You can't lock it from the inside. And so if you remember at the very beginning, it said that Salvador Ramos, you know, the gunman, that he locked it from the inside and barricaded himself in there. But it's not even possible. I did think that at that time, because, you know, having been a teacher, I know that you can't lock those doors from the inside. Um, now, those doors are supposed to be safer. Um, but, you know, whenever we would do the school shooting drills, you know, the lockdown drills that we would do, you know, pretty often in schools, I remember feeling extreme anxiety. Um, I didn't know if it was a drill or if it was real. Um, and when you have to lock the door, you have to go outside into the hallway with your keys. And I always wore them on a lanyard on my, you know, I always wore them on a lanyard so I'd have them. So I would go out. I would try to lock it. And then just in my anxiety and nervousness, I was like, is it locked? Is it, am I turning it the right way? So I remember taking a marker and marking, to, you know, a little arrow to know which way and, and to make, and then you can't even really check it by the time, like you're inside and you don't know if it's locked or not. Um, but, you know, for law enforcement not to check the door and not to go in there and, and save well, kids. And not only that. To say, I mean, you know, you can see uh, part of what McCraw did last week was to release what looked like a pretty comprehensive timeline. Yeah. In which, you know, it's based on radio communications and, you know, video footage and and all of that. Um, We've got Arredondo saying, the door's locked. (laughs) I mean, and he hadn't even tried it. I mean. Give me the keys. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just like, it's it's just extreme incompetence. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he turns around later and tells, you know, in his first interview, his only interview since the shooting was with Texas Tribune telling them the door was locked. Well, you know, 
that that looks like a cover up to me because they know <laughs> yeah, based on like, video footage, right. based on that tried it. it wasn't that yeah. nobody tried it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the question you asked Carrie earlier about who's at fault. I mean, obviously Salvador Ramos is at fault, right? I mean, if he wouldn't have gone in there, and you know, all our lawmakers are at fault too because they made it easy, too easy to get the gun in the first place. Um, but as far as the response, I see it as all the law enforcement in there was was at fault, right? Because Pete, I mean, okay, so he's in charge, right? We think um, he's in charge, but how about all the other ones in there? And how could they just not go in there and try to save those kids well, in sooner? The, in the Tribune story, they have a DPS trooper, you know, asking why are who seeing sounds very frustrated and is asking why are we not going in there? Um, but I, I think that uh, while we're you know trying to get as much information as we can, I think they're also and this is maybe more of a long-term issue, there has to be some reevaluation of the procedure for these kinds of situations. When you have someone who, uh, I'm not trying to denigrate um, school district police officers, you know, but um, to the fact that you had basically state police deferring to a school district police officer and it didn't, and he's saying, I didn't really think that I was in control. I mean, if that was the case, he probably should have made it clear and deferred and said, you all take over. Um, so that, that was lack of communication, but I think we have to think about how we do these things. Yeah. And I mean, and look, I think this is kind of revisionist thinking or uh, kind of a recasting of history on Arredondo's part. If you look at McCraw's timeline, which includes a number of quotes yeah. from Arredondo, he, it, it certainly appears that he felt like he was in control of the situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, so mm-hmm. if, for him to come back and say, I didn't think I was in control, well, then why did you behave as though you were in control? You can't help but imagine. I mean, that's all we can do is imagine the what ifs. But if, uh, if one, either when Arredondo gets there first, he does the right thing and goes through the door and whatever happens, happens. And um, this is, I don't mean this to sound as, as, as cruel as it does, but whether he lives or dies, he's, he's a hero who may have saved some children. Or if someone else, maybe if DBS had gotten there first and not made the bad decisions he had. It all comes down to ultimately getting there and waiting for an hour. And that's, that's the part we'll never be able to live with. We, we won't be able to company. That's the part that the families won't be able to live with. I mean, the thing is, like, is, as part of active shooter training, in most cases, I think uh, the trainers are, are very clear. It's like, look, you, if there's an active shooter and, you know, lives are in the balance, you go to the shooter and you shoot until they're dead. Stop the killing. Uh, you yeah. stop the killing. And I think they're clear this you will be putting yourself at risk. There's like no way, you know, you know, there's no way to, you know, have a policy like that and to say, but you're going to be okay or don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, that's part of the training like that, you know, you're putting yourself in danger, but that's what you do. Yeah. Of course, a footnote to the story is that Pete Arredondo was elected to uh, Uvalde City Council a couple of weeks before this shooting happened. Um, he has not you know, t- turned up at city council meetings. There was a, a meeting last week where they were co- had to determine whether or not they were going to give him a, a, a leave of absence. Um, it wasn't completely clear to me whether he requested it, though I assume that he that it was the request came from him. I think he did. Um, yes. So, and there was a lot and understandable uh, anger in the community about that. Um, and so, um, 
they 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 denied it, and I think it's going to be. My understanding is that if you if you miss three, three. meetings in a row, that they can uh, they can remove they can consider the seat vacant and they can they can replace you. So I, I mean, again, I can only imagine his, his, his inability from the moment he got to the school until today to do the right thing. Because what, what's the point of holding on to the city council seat? What's the point of holding on to the, the, the chief of police? What, what is the point? I mean, you have to live with yourself for the rest of your life. And there's nothing that you're going to ever be able to do which is going to cleanse your name, but at least do some small things that will let people think that for once you're not thinking only about yourself. And if you're just hiding from the community, which he's been doing, and look, I understand uh, this is an incredibly uh, tough time for him. Um, but you, how are you going to function on city council right in, in that situation? I just don't think there's any way you can. From do the that. beginning, I thought, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he just um, leave? You know, um, resign from the position because, or he shouldn't have accepted it in the first place yeah. um, because there was that timing of it. He did not need to get signed and That's he right. didn't need to get sworn in. Um, it's a distraction. I think it's disrespectful to the, I mean, it's not like read the room, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's more hurtful to the community, no matter what happened. Right. right. I mean, you're in a situation where like he's got a security detail outside of his house. He can't, you know, he's, there's so much, uh, anger in the community, he's sworn in in a private ceremony. So yeah, it's a natural question. Why Why hasn't he stepped down? Why doesn't he do the right thing? And I think, I mean, here, my, my best guess is he's got, he's lawyered up and his attorneys are telling him, be careful about anything you do. Don't look like you're assuming any culpability for what happened. Resigning from office, leaving your job, will make it appear as though you've done something wrong. That's my best guess. And he's, he's kind of bought into it, you know. Um, last Friday, <clears throat> um, we got news that was expected, but still uh, stunned, uh, I think, all of us, um, when, it, when it actually became a reality. And this was the announcement that the Supreme Court had overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which uh, uh, made abortion legal throughout the United States. Um, Texas has a, a trigger law in place, meaning that within a month of the Supreme Court decision, um, abortion will be legal in, uh, in, in cases including uh, rape and incest. I think the only exception is to protect the life of the, of the mother. I think that's right. Um, and so there, we've seen protests in San Antonio. We've seen protests across the country. Um, Nancy, what do you... What was your reaction? As I, as I mentioned, we we had gotten there had been a leak of the de- decision uh, about a month and a half ago. We had some idea this was coming. What was yeah. your reaction? I mean, we thank God we had a you know a leak, right? <laughs> um, that's how I see it because it it felt very raw and stunning anyway. Um, sh- and we weren't shocked by it, right? Um, so imagine if we didn't have that leak. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's a sad and frustrating situation. You know, there are more, I, I read something that said, um, and I, you know, I didn't do the research on it, but I believe, and I've seen it several places, you know, um, that there are more women alive today that have grown up with Roe versus Wade versus 
before, right? And so this is a whole other world um, to to young people, and and this is what we're doing, right? Um, it is. Talking about not reading the room, right, <laughs> or not understanding the plight of women, um, but to take that choice, that that constitutional right, that choice over their own bodies and what they're going to do. Um, you know, in Abbott and Governor Abbott's statement where he said, you know, the state of Texas has um, now th this isn't a direct quote, but where he says that they're um, doing all they can to support women and and so that women can keep their babies. I'm like, you know, what? Um, what? state is he in? Because that is not true, you know, and we, you know, so they're pro-life, I say with some air quotes here, because they're really not. And what this comes down to is politics and votes. This has always been something part of their platform, right? Um, this That's all they see here is votes. They don't see the women who have to carry the baby. They don't see all the situation, I mean, rape, incest and everything else. Well, it's, it's reminiscent of the, uh, the famous George Carlin routine where he talks about, you know, this, you know, I think like, you know, he's talking about culture war conservatives and saying, you know, they, uh, you know, pre-birth, they love you. And then, uh, but you know, preschool, you know, you're not going to get that. Um, when it comes to services after you're born, it's, it's, it's a different thing. Um, we've, we have had just, uh, in, San Antonio, we've had uh, Bear County District Attorney Joe Gonzalez saying that he's he's going to uh, use his prosecutorial discretion uh, and uh, kind of indicated that he's not going to prosecute cases if they come up. Um, I think one of the things that has a lot of people worried beyond the the concern about this issue is that you had a concurring opinion from Clarence Thomas where he said now that we've kind of shot down this whole privacy thing which was the basis the constitutional basis for Roe v Wade let's kind of reevaluate some other things there was a a, a decision in 1965, uh, the Griswold decision, which um, dealt with contraception, the contra contraception ban in, in Connecticut. Uh, and it, it was, I think it really introduced the privacy issue in the Supreme Court. So you're saying, let's look at that again. Let, let's reevaluate the uh, same-sex marriage uh, legalization decision in, in 2015. Again, this is just Clarence Thomas. I don't know. I think the contraception one in particular would probably be one that even even in 65, that Connecticut law was not applied very often. It was kind of um, I, I don't and I don't think there was tremendous objection, even from the, the Catholic community when when it um, the Supreme Court made that decision. But same sex marriage, I think uh, I could definitely see that being under under some threat. Yeah. I mean, to me, the 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 Clarence Thomas dissent was in some ways more intellectually honest than Alito's mm -hmm. majority <laughs> opinion. Yeah. I mean, in, in that in in Alito's opinion, it's like, OK, this is OK. Yeah, we're 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 tearing out the foundation of of Roe versus Wade. But it, it, it's just it, this is just about abortion. This is it. We're not going to go any further. Uh, <laughs> nobody. Nobody. Yeah, exactly. Nobody, nobody believes that. So, you know, uh, like <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. 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 So like we do not believe you. So along comes Clarence, Clarence Thomas saying the obvious. Like this is like I'll put a lot of faith in what he says, because that's the thinking of the majority of this court. I mean, I've got no doubt in my mind about yeah, it. Yeah, anybody th thinks that, that, that um, you know, people on the right have gotten over the same-sex uh, marriage decision and that they've, they've, it's been accepted, I, I mean, I don't think that's that's the case. And, and it's been 
pointed out for someone else on Friday, a few people now that, you know, what, what, you know, all those, those cases that Thomas mentioned, he excluded loving, yep. which, <laughs> which, which allow for interracial marriage. And, uh, and, and the whole thing, like, with, with, and Griswold is about so much more than contraception. It really is about privacy. But when, as we listen to, to discussions about contraception being involved, I think men, especially men who, you know, support this decision, they hear con- contraception and they think, oh, you know, women, IUDs and all this. Come on, if, you, if they're going to be, you know, inclusive in this contribution, uh, contraception, that's include condoms. Where they going to draw the line. Yeah. yeah. So. I wanted to mention um, about a month and a half ago when the leak happened, I heard a podcast interview it was on the, on the podcast called The Unspeakable. I think I'm, I'm getting that right, the Unspeakable Podcast. And it was an interview with a woman named Frances Kisling, who's kind of a, a pioneer in the uh, reproductive rights movement. She actually ran an abortion clinic in New York City in the early 70s, pre-Roe v. Wade. And, there was a, and it was a fascinating interview. I mean, among, among other things, she talked about how pre-Roe v. Wade, they were getting about 100 uh, patients there uh, for abortion services every Saturday. And they had women coming in uh, from Georgia and Kentucky and states across the country. Um, she, uh, But one of the things that she that she talked about, and I thought this was really interesting and something that I think we people are going to be thinking about a lot, is she's, she's not discouraged the idea of people, you know, using their voting power, voting out uh, people who are anti-choice um, and trying to convert red states to blue states and so on. But she said, and I think this is true, that it's a very difficult process. It's, it, sometimes it can take years and years if it ever happens at all in some states. And she kind of offered this, what she considered a practical perspective, which was, let's look at the states where, let, rather than trying uh, so hard to convert the red states, which you know people are going to want to do, people on, on the left. But she said, maybe we should focus more of our energy on the blue states and the states where abortion services are available and let's fund organizations. And and we're starting to see some of this happening. We're starting to see businesses saying they're going to do this. Fund organizations that are going to help provide transportation to the co- and cover the cost to get women from states where there will be no abortion services to places where they can get this done. And let's really put a lot of funding and a lot of energy behind that. Let's also put money in those states where you have a more friendly environment to, to the idea of uh, the right to an abortion. Put funding into in- increasing clinics because there's going to be a greater need now probably in some of these states. So I thought that was a really interesting point. And I, and I know that people are thinking a lot about that. I, I, love, I love the idea because, I mean, I think it's great all the businesses that have stepped up and saying that, you know, any of our employees who need these services, we're going to do it for them. But, you know, why should a woman have to tell her boss that she needs the service? So with, with Kisling's idea, you can have, you still have the protection of anonymity. So. Yeah. And so, and I think, I think she's thinking like, what are we going to do in the short term? And as horrible as the situation is for, uh, for women who are, are going to now be in the situation where they're, if they're going to be states where they're not going to have an option here, um, the environment is somewhat better than it was pre-Roe. I think there were very few states that had, uh, where it was legal. I think we're we're probably looking about maybe half the states now, I, th- I believe. So um, it's the environment has changed somewhat, and I think that's what's got, what she was focusing on. Um, before we wrap things up, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that happened about a week and a half ago, the news that the Symphony Society of San Antonio had, is declaring bankruptcy and basically dissolving the symphony after 83 years in San Antonio. Um, 
you know, there, there are people, uh, I think certainly people who are sympathetic to the musicians who would say that the problem has been management and, uh, how, how the, this organization has been run. There are people on sympathetic with management who would say that the musicians have an unrealistic expectation of how much money they should be receiving, that, 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 that it's just, it doesn't, the, the money just isn't there. And I think, uh, you have, the take from Lionel Sosa, who's a former political consultant and a former chair of the Symphony Society board, who uh, wrote an op-ed in the Express News and said, "You know, this is kind of a good thing. I mean, this is uh, uh, the board. Uh, you know, we were the, in the 30 years ago when I was a board chair, we were always in trouble with money. And I, I commend the board for for uh, putting the symphony out of its misery. Its time has passed. There's no consumer demand anymore." Great. Yeah, it was you a very about right. Yeah, I was gonna say it was it was a very neoliberal <laughs> position, <laughs> Lionel. Very market oriented as a businessman. Totally makes sense. I mean, symphonies and other arts organizations. I mean, look, it's just my personal belief is they should not be subject to market whims <laughs> or to the conditions of the market. What what a symphony and a really strong arts organization needs is. Philanthropists, like serious, big money philanthropists. And frankly, like in a city like San Antonio, that money is available. It's just that we have a really weak history of millionaires and a couple of billionaires. You know, they they will step up. I mean, it's not like uh, they're not writing checks to organizations. They don't, it's not like they don't have foundations, but you don't have big city makers like you see in in Houston historically. And, you know, Houston and Dallas, um, there you have, you know, you have business people who will devote, you know, big money to like the symphony, to the arts museum, you know, enough money that you can create a foundation and you can you can operate off of the proceeds of that foundation and you can augment the mission by, you know, ticket sales and things like that. But you're not living and dying by ticket, ticket sales. sales. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, there's a lot of talk about maybe a new organization forming and you have Mayor Ron Nuremberg and, and County Judge Nelson Wolf, who I think has a particularly big stake in this because he championed the Tobin Center and, and the Tobin Center was not Purely for the for the symphony, but it, that was a big motivation for that's to a, have a state of the art facility for the symphony. Oh yeah, and this is, I mean, th that's a big open. I mean, really, that's the next question. It's like, okay, now that the you don't have a symphony, you don't. I mean, it was it was always seen as the anchor tenant of the Topin Center. What now? <laughs> you know, I mean, what you yeah. know, what kind of hold does that punch in the Topin Center's balance sheet? The problem is, I mean, you know, if if we're talking about you know, city and county money going, you know, once again to rescue the symphony. I mean, that's not going to work either. It's, it's a, it's, you know, there's always going to be political pressure to make this a very limited expenditure because not everybody, not every taxpayer wants to save the symphony. <laughs> and the <laughs> you question know. is like, you're going to do it for them. Who, yeah, you know, exactly. Exactly. Reasons? So you're, you're opening a door to, you know, all kinds of requests and you're going to be, you'll get nothing but criticism from, you know, some, some taxpayers who just don't want to see their money used to save something they never go to. Yeah. Just, you know, there are people in San Antonio who donate, you know, um, they're just choosing not to donate, uh, to the symphony, uh, for whatever reason. And maybe it is, you know, maybe partly it was management as well. Maybe they didn't, um, 
make the case. Uh, you know, St. Mary's had a record $165 million campaign, you know? And so when I saw that, I thought, wow, those are a lot of yeah. people not donating to the symphony. I mean, you're right. You're right. Like there, there are a lot of really major contributions, yeah. you know, Red McCombs would be one. Mm -hmm. Carlos Alvarez is another. Uh, they're, they're going to their alma maters and they're contributing a lot of money. But when it comes to kind of the cultural life of the city, it's kind of barren. There's really nothing. And then maybe it would take a new organization to at least uh, revive the idea that this is something, because if people start starting to think, oh, the symphony again, we need, they need money. They're in trouble again. So um, maybe that's what it's going to require. Um, it's going to be something we're going to follow. We're going to wrap things up there. Hope everyone's doing well. And we'll be back with you next week. Take care.